The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Steve Schooner. Steve is the Nash and Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. It's been a while since Steve's been on, but Steve, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. Great to be back, Roger. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, I'm looking forward. It's always a great conversation. Um, gets gets me thinking all the time about different things. I hadn't actually thought. I said, what about that? You know, it's a hmm, you know, that kind of thing. Well, but, good. If I make somebody think today, it was definitely worth my oh, time. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's your job, right? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yes. More times than not. <laughs> right. So, uh so, and I know one of the areas where you're, you're, you like to talk a lot about and, and, and look at, and, and, and it is important, is procurement data. Um, and so I'm asking what, what you today, like, what are you looking at? What's interesting you? What are the questions you have about what's going on in the world of procurement data? Sure. So let's just start with the big picture first. I mean, the conversation has gotten a lot more interesting around the world, literally in the last couple of years, because of the open data and the open contracting partnership. So- this may be foreign to a lot of Americans, but basically around the world, governments are having a conversation about standardizing procurement data, and we're just not participating in that in the United States because we were in many ways ahead of the curve. But bottom line is we have a lot of data. The problem that we have is we have decades and decades, generations of procurement data, but we've been measuring what's easy to measure instead of what's important. So, in fact, we have lots of data on the wrong stuff and none of the data on the stuff that really matters. So so what is the wrong stuff? I know we've talked about this before, but it is good stuff. Like what is the wrong stuff that we're gathering and trying to measure and base things off of? So we're good at quantifying. We know how many contracts have been awarded. We know how many dollars have been spent. We know what congressional districts they went to. We know which contractors have them. We know what percentage of the dollars went to small businesses and other groups. But we don't have basically any data whatsoever on the two things that matter to normal consumers, and that is, did we get value for money and did we get customer satisfaction? And so over time, hopefully, we'll think a little bit more like the private sector. Now, in a minute, we'll come back to this. We'll make it a little bit more sophisticated because the other thing that we haven't done really well on is we have no meaningful data on life cycle cost or total cost of ownership, which is also really important. But the one that's really got me thinking today, and I know this is one that your listeners are interested in, is we just saw kind of buried with all of the other acquisition reforms about in the last year is we just tripled the micro-purchase threshold and blew the lid off the simplified acquisition threshold. So just think about it. You know, it wasn't so long ago. You remember the micro-purchase threshold and the charge card, that was a replacement for the old impress fund. Right, exactly, yeah. 2000 2500 <laughs> So, you know, you get up to $3,500, and then boom, we're at $10,000. So, I mean, we're talking tens of millions of transactions, billions of dollars, and we have macro-level data, macro data on yeah. that. So most of the agencies have not invested in smart card technology. You as a consumer at home have much better data on how you spend – than right. most agencies yep, do. Yeah, that's true. So, My statements tell me everything I've done. But, <laughs> so it's really kind of amazing. So the real question is, you know, where does that 
really move the business? Do the small businesses get excluded? Do the big box stores and the online retailers get that money? And then, of course, as you know, Jeff Kozis at GSA is basically saying, okay, so we went from three and a half to 10, but what we really need to do is get to 25. Right, double it, okay. even further, more so, than double it, so right? <laughs> 20, so, in effect, what we'll have done in a generation, if Jeff gets his way, is gone from basically 2,000 or 2,500 to 25,000. Ten times. Yeah. I mean, so that's a really big number, and we aren't sophisticated enough to unpack that data. I'll just give you one crazy example. As you know, one thing that I was arguing for back in the 90s when we first got the charge card was let's use the smart card technology and then on a year-to-year basis, GSA or OFPP or whoever goes and negotiates with the big box retailers for automatic point-of-sale discounts. And GSA says, oh, that's too complicated. And I say, it's not too complicated. My kid's little league team can get a (laughs) point-of-sale discount. So I, I know this is not that hard. But it's amazing in 2019 that we aren't concatenating our procurement card data and then going to our primary retailers and demanding point-of-sale discounts. Right. But again, massive hole in so, the data there. Oh, Steve, I have to – you just made me think a couple – because really the purpose of the the, the micro-purchase threshold was I, – I, I'm old enough to remember when we had to fill out requisition forms in triplicate oh, in sure. paper to get, you know, like a, a, you know some – copper paper or pens or pencils or anything like that. And there was a revolution at the time to be able, hey, we've got a purchase card. You can go down to Home Depot or uh, Office Depot or Staples and, like, buy stuff and get in the – that was sort of the intent, right? right? And there's no question that it has been a massive leap forward, a paradigm shift in terms of reducing transaction costs. Right. So when we And focusing this, on buying commercial things. Absolutely. Right. right. This yeah. is this is pretty much always commercial. Right. But the idea that we did some research in the nineties and we were spending fifty dollars in personnel costs to buy a five dollar hammer. Right. That's exactly <laughs> what you don't want to do. <laughs> right. So there's lots of positives, but we still I mean it's not just it's easy to blame GSA, but the government writ large has not stepped up to managing a multi billion dollar transaction process, and so we really haven't made much progress there. And every now and then we get some reports on fraud, but we really haven't – we haven't cracked that nut yet. So I want to – I got two other questions in this area on on the micro-purchase because it's an interesting issue and it's one of the issues that that I hear a lot about from IT companies, particularly those who support the government, is this – is the supply chain and cyber risk. You can buy a lot of stuff with 10,000 – if you have a $10,000 limit, right? Right. And the issues there with regard to counterfeit gray, remanufactured, the cyber issues, it seems to me, do you see that as a potential like, tension in this and that over time? If if something happens, there will be a push right. blowback, right? But it does create a risk in the system. And again, and there's things that don't apply, like you know, Trade Agreements Act, for sure. example. So you can buy as much right. Chinese although, stuff as you want. micro-purchase has always been under the Trade Agreements Act threshold. Right? It has, but right. but some of the stuff you're going to be buying you, you was normally on contract. And, let, and let's be clear that, you know, it's one thing to disaggregate in units of $2,000. You start disaggregating in units of $10,000. dollars talk about real while. money, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 10, oh, I stole your line. 10000 here, 10000 there. Right, yes. right, right. But, but no, that's a really important point. So, but let's just think about it in terms of the information technology market. We have all this discussion going on about cybersecurity, but the bottom line is what are our input and output devices? A lot of times these are things that are purchased commercial, off-the-shelf mm-hmm. purchase cards, 
And, you know, I was just doing research on my new phone. Everybody's telling me the best mobile phone camera out there is the unnamed vendor from China that we're not talking uh-huh. about. This right, week. right, right. So yeah. obviously I'm not buying that. But, like Voldemort or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, these are serious issues here. And so I do think that over time it would be good for us to try to manage it, but it's almost kind of stunning when you think how, about where, where we gone. started yeah. from, from the 1990s, how little thought we've put into that. But it makes sense. If you've got a procurement organization and you don't have very many people, you put your best people on your biggest, highest profile procurement, and then you keep passing out the charge cards to get all the other yeah. needs met. So right. that's a big one. Right. Well, um, Steve, my, my other question in this area about data, because you talked about like the things we measure and like, getting back on that a little bit. And they're very you know, quantitative and you can count them. Not qualitative. Oh, qua- not qualitative, quantitative. Exactly. That's why I, I, if I misspoke. No, you got it right. Yeah. So – so the bean counters can count those, right? Exactly. So I have to ask category management. And what you hear from, you know, GSA and, and you know, it's all about data, but it seems to me they're doubling down on the type of data you're, you know, the quantitative right. data. It's the wrong data. Right. So is there do you see any way they well, what do we need to do? There are I lots guess? of ways to do it. Okay? Right. So for example, you know, the in the classroom, we would normally begin, if we were having a conversation about customer satisfaction or life cycle costs, we'd begin with something like automobiles because anyone who's purchased an automobile has probably used Consumer Reports or Edmunds, which is the classic algorithm of using crowdsourced customer satisfaction and life cycle costs to influence purchasing decisions. It's exactly what GSA isn't doing, and it's pretty much everything that's wrong – with the data-driven efforts that are all price-focused. Right. And, Steve, when we come back, we'll continue to talk about those data-driven efforts that are price-focused and what the implications for the government are long-term if we continue to double down on this approach. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He is the National Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He is the Nash and Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. And Steve, we we took the break. We were talking data. I know you had a couple other points sure, uh, with regard to yeah. what we do here in this country with data. Yeah, just a couple things to keep in mind. One of the most interesting things in the prior administration was when Frank Kendall was the USDA TNL, he did those three performance assessment studies. And they were data rich and a lot of people were overwhelmed by them. They were a little bit boring, but they were fascinating in terms of the data. That's a pretty big void that's not being filled right now. We're somewhat hopeful that GAO and the Congressional Research Service will step into that void. But I do think that that kind of serious analysis of longitudinal trends and outcomes was really important. So I really kind of miss that. The other one I really want to mention to your listeners, though, is if you haven't been paying attention to usaspending.gov in the last couple of years, go back and visit, okay? So I realize most people don't really use FPDS, the Federal Procurement Data System, anymore. We all use the usaspending.gov, which is the repackaged data. But they've been putting a tremendous amount of effort the last couple of years into something that they call the data lab. And it was in beta, and now they've kind of separated the data lab out. But the whole point of the data lab is to take this massive amount of data 
and slice it and dice it into digestible, frankly, visually pleasing nuggets of information. Sometimes they worry a little bit more on the optics rather than the right. content. Uh, yeah, it looks pretty. But. <laughs> yeah, but, but, it, but it's really fascinating stuff. You know, there's this part of me that thinks it tastes great, but it's not very filling. But still, in terms of transparency, it's so much better because even when we used to print the FPDS reports, only the experts could take them apart. And there are people who do this for a living. But the data lab over time is actually becoming really interesting. So. Yeah. Okay, so we, yeah, we'll get folks to go take a look at that. Um, yeah, that's um, I'm, tr- I'm trying to understand the market and and where things going. Looking at that data is um, there's lots of people who make lots of money doing that, right? So and because it's so confusing, so you know, taking a look at uh, US, things, US spending US spending.gov and the data lab, I think is I'm going to go do that when I, I get off the, get I, out I, of the I show. USAspending.gov, <laughs> knock yourselves out. All right, so <laughs> don't wreck the car. Yeah, Park first. Right. So, um, <laughs> so I know an, another area, and it's re, I guess it can be related to data and an analysis of data or trends uh, is artificial intelligence. And and uh, talking about that in the procurement context is something interesting. So I'm just going to turn it over to you. What's going on here, yeah, Steve? So so literally. If you had told me six months ago that we'd be talking about artificial intelligence and public procurement in the same sentence or paragraph, I'd have burst out laughing. But I actually got so first involved. you have to find intelligence, right, in the government. No, <laughs> Remember, no, that's my art- line. It's artificial intelligence. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I get invited to this. It's literally a global working group, uh, you know, over at the um, International Monetary Fund. Uh, I'm sorry, the International no, – no, the IADB. Inter-American Development Bank. Sorry about okay. that. That's so okay. Affiliated with the World Bank. But they invited us to this program, and my theory was, yeah, I'll go and talk to your program if you let me talk about some of my favorite science fiction novels. And they said, okay. But bottom line is they had a group of experts in the room, and we spent a half day talking about how artificial intelligence can and eventually will impact federal procurement in terms of decision-making and, of course, as we were just talking, unpacking the data. So there are a lot of fascinating things. The short answer for the listeners, however, is not there yet. So AI is not tremendously changing the way that we do a lot of business. Clearly, the companies have all kinds of fancy algorithms. And if we move in the direction of the Amazon-type portals, obviously AI becomes all the more important, particularly with regard to spending habits and preferences. But one of the things that was interesting is with a group of experts in the room, we started talking about why is it that with all of the strides AI is making in other fields, it hasn't happened in procurement yet. And this is what the experts had to say, some, some interesting things you may not have thought about. The first was that of all the things AI is very good at, one of the things it's not very good at is what they call natural language. In other words, contractual language is not something that you can readily teach in AI processor or create an algorithm for it. Lawyers are going to be happy about that, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> so, but it's one of the reasons why some legal functions will get outsourced, but AI is going to be slow to put the attorneys out of business, particularly the ones who are doing the thinking and creative work. So natural language is very, very difficult, particularly if you understand the process of how AI learns, what we call machine learning. But the thing that – the reason that I bring it back to this other topic is – the same problems that they have with artificial intelligence are the problems that you are talking about with category management and we talk about with data. Trust me, the AI, the machine learner, can quantify how many things did you buy, how much did you pay for them, 
who gave you the lowest price. But the AI is not very good at comparing like items, nor is it very good at assessing customer satisfaction or value for money, and it's particularly bad at life cycle cost. Now, this is kind of fun. So I'm sitting there with these experts. I say, so, you know, it seems to me, life cycle cost seems to me to be a mathematical problem. That should be something I can do with a spreadsheet. So why isn't AI winning in this field? And the answer is garbage data in, garbage uh-huh. data out. Right. So in order for the machine to learn, you have to give it the data. And we don't collect the data. So what do we know? How many things did we buy? What did we pay for them? Who got the contract? Where were they delivered? Are they on time? Were they late? But we're not asking people for consumer-based information. Did it work? Did you use it? How do you keep track of your operating costs? How do you keep track of your maintenance costs? How do you correlate your disposition costs? For example, did you get resale or did you pay more to dispose of it than you paid to build it? So all of the variables that would be required for the machine to learn aren't being collected, so we can't use them. So AI is basically at a – literally a roadblock with regard to the stuff that really matters in procurement. So in the past – I mean when you describe that, I think of past performance evaluation. example. And whether or not those – how effective in the federal, federal government context they really are given the process around that. Great topic. And in fact – and I think Jason Miller had a hand in this recently as well. But, you know, we've finally been having a serious conversation about what I would call the great epiphany of past performance. And look, I admit, I was there with Steve Kalman when all this stuff got put in the far. We thought yep. we were changing uh, the world. Yes. and I was there too, but yeah. I, was, I wasn't there with Steve. Right. But, <laughs> but I will say in re- it was well-intentioned. Or you, Steve, for them. <laughs> but, but we blew it, okay? Yeah. Because what we have now is decades of data on the shopper's experience. We know whether the CEO was happy, but it never really stopped to cross our mind whether we should be focused on the end user yeah, the program. or the head of the agency. Yeah. Or, now, yeah. the other one that's really interesting, and this is where I think the recent studies have been really good, and this is so important. What incentive does the contracting officer have to do a good past performance report? And when I say good, I mean a fulsome one, right. a critical one, a positive one. Bottom line is, what do we know? The CEO has no incentive to do a report at all once they're done because they got to move on to the other thing and they're busy. They have no incentive to criticize the contractor because then the contractor is going to come back, come back and complain and challenge it, yeah. and that's a make-work assignment. Yes, so you get more work. Yes, right. exactly. So we have a exactly. database full of generic, neutral stuff on the CEO's experience with no information on customer satisfaction or value for money, and yeah. that's heartbreaking. Yeah. So when we come back, I might ask you just yet suggestions on how to fix it sure. or your idea. And then we maybe we'll talk perhaps about OFPP and, you know, the, the vacuum there sure. from a political perspective, right, uh, in terms of an appointee. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He's the National Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Wisdom served daily. Experience the difference of the journalists at Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Steve Schooner. He's the Nash and Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. And we've talked a lot about data, a little about artificial intelligence and past performance and 
So the quantitative analysis that we do or collect, you know, again, it tells you how much you buy, but not whether or not you're actually happy with it. And it's met performance parameters. And the past performance system, as you described last segment, is you know less than uh, optimum <laughs> to but be much kind. Better than nothing. Yeah, exactly. That's true. That's very true. Um, so, what would you do? So, this same. What would you do to address, to fix, to fill these gaps, to get the information that is more relevant, or actually relevant to um, decision making and ensuring best value for the taxpayer for customer agency missions? Yeah. So, basically, what we need to do is we need to change. We need to reverse the lens. We need to change our perspective, and we need to get some experts in there on consumer preferences and how businesses think. So. I, at a minimum, you start with an organization like Consumer Reports or Consumer Checkbook because they have a track record of how to assess the difference between purchase price and real value for money. Now, of course, that's goods. But as we all know from the Consumer Checkbook, we can do this with services too, right? So when you have your furniture – and you know, as you know, the Department of Defense is about to enter into a massive new moving a furniture moving contract. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't really care who's the cheapest mover by mile or by metric ton. I want to know who's not breaking the furniture and who's getting the stuff there on time and who's making the homeowners happy. And that's the kind of information that consumer organizations have been studying and collecting for years. And the government could do that. Another place where we should be doing it is using it for competitive prototypes. So let's buy some things, let's test them, Um, and let's use Mm -hmm. that data before we make big decisions. So again, I mean, I don't think this is rocket science, but it's hard. And as you know, this doesn't happen by itself. This kind of stuff requires leadership. Right. And then there's always the process side of it too, right? Because you get bought. I mean, there's a balance, right? And what you described with regard to past performance and – the idea that it's you know a contracting officer wants to move on to the next thing, or then if I write a good report, maybe that's a little critical. Of the contractor, it turn around and get to respond, and then you're in the, that cycle. You know they've got to also think about how to efficiently, effectively capture that that type of analysis, right? Now, if if you want to put, for example, the federal supply schedules in the best light, you could say that one really good aspect about them is theoretically everything on the schedule should work and should be quality because GSA is supposed to be pre-qualified. It's a lot more complicated when we get to commercial services. And obviously that's where the explosion has been in the last couple decades. Mm -hmm. But if we're not measuring the effectiveness of the services, whether customers are happy with what they're getting, whether they're meeting the needs, whether people enjoy working with these contractors, we're just not doing our job. And that's going to take some serious change. Right, and some leadership. Yeah, right? well, uh, leadership's a big issue. Right. And we just have a little bit of a problem there. Right, so yes, <laughs> and I know this is one of your pet peeves, yeah. is that they're, um, the OFPP administrator, their Office of Federal Procurement Policy, vacant. It, it is vacant, and it's been vacant for the duration of the administration. administration. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, on a positive note, they did appoint someone, and the po- person that they appointed, even though he doesn't appear to necessarily be moving or have any traction, is what I would call a merit appointee, not a political hack, not someone who we're worried about getting into trouble, but doesn't appear to be any momentum or initiative from the administration to get that position filled. And I've read plenty of stuff in the media 
but do we really need an OFPP administrator? And I guess you can make the argument we don't, and no disrespect to Leslie Field, who is a superb yes. civil servant. Mm-hmm. She's done a wonderful job there over the years. But at the end of the day, the reason that it's great to have a political appointee and the reason that we, we got that in the OFPP Act decades ago is it's hard to overstate the importance of the visibility of the office and having a seat at the table. And, you know, you think about all of the things that the 809 panel is trying to achieve at DOD. It's hard to get any leadership leverage from the White House with the Hill to move legislation if you don't have someone who's willing to engage in political infighting. But much more important to me, and look, you know this too from your own experience, who's the champion for the acquisition workforce? Who's out there fighting to ensure we have enough people, to ensure they have the right kind of training, to ensure that they're getting career progression, that there's professional development? I mean, this is hard work. And mining the farm, which is what we've been doing a really good job at the last few years, isn't going to keep up and isn't going to be doing creative thinking and isn't going to solve the kind of problems we were just talking about, about how you could reinvent or reimagine or dramatically improve a past performance system. Right. Yeah. It's it's that some someone the bully pulpit in, in well, part. Right. 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 To talk about investments in the acquisition workforce and in systems and things like that, that, um, you know, Leslie is a great person and a great civil servant. But um, let's be but clear. She's not a political right. and it takes a, someone to do to your point to do that political infighting. And the acquisition workforce notices. I mean, they know who's fighting for them. They know who's up there swinging. They know who's up there basically trying to ensure that their leaders know the importance of their task rather than their just support personnel. And I think these things are important. You know, look, one of the things that Steve Kelman did that was really, really great was that frontline forum. You know, bring yes. the CEOs together. Let's get people talking to each other. And I think that OFPP can do some of that stuff, but OFPP is a tiny office. And the power, as you said, is it's a bully pulpit. And it's who's over walking the halls and the hill. Like Dan Gordon is a great example of it. Great example. Yeah. So it's it's intellectual leadership. It's thought leadership. But at the end of the day, it's it's aggressive negotiation. Right. The leadership's really important. And does it does it from your perspective, having been there and done that, um, does it do you see it impacting your agendas in a certain? So you mentioned DOD. Absolutely. Uh, There's no there's no uniform. There's no consistency or and. Folks are, you know, angling for their sort of a sure. parochial thing as opposed I mean, to an overall enterprise approach but, from a, you know, from a policy perspective. Right. On, or the, politi- on the one hand, we could just talk about the regulatory agenda, right? So we've seen an incredibly slow pace of regulatory change, and to some extent that's intentional. But there is no one standing up in the halls of OMB basically saying, these are what we need to achieve efficiencies. These are the right. kind of changes that are going to get the customer the kind of outcomes they want. And if you were to sit down and, you know, take a David Drapkin 809 wish list for, I may not get everything I asked for in the 809 report, but if I ask for three or five or ten things, they all require leadership. Right. And so that, that, that's really the big hole that we have right now. And I think it's devastating because you just can't be static for two, three, or four years when markets are constantly evolving, particularly right. given some of the big issues that we have. And, you know, look, your listeners, this is an evolving marketplace. It changes every day. We need to be on top of that. 
Right. Well, you talked about artificial intelligence earlier, right? That's a that's going to impact the market, like as you said, um, across the board. We don't even know how it's going to impact the market. We can't, you know, because we haven't thought of it, right? right. So, it is, but it's going to happen, right? So realistically, GSA is doing some good stuff, and they're out there basically doing their thing, right? So right. somebody's got to, and you know, one thing I often am relatively negative, but one positive thing I wanted to mention. While <laughs> well, I was on I'm going to ask you about that later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So one, one positive thing, you know, if you haven't been paying attention to the far side, if you go to www.acquisition.gov, really cool piece of news that you may have seen in the last couple of days, or you may see the next time you log on is finally. And when I say finally, I mean, finally, we're seeing an effort to merge the far site with the acquisition.gov site. So what that means in practice is DOD has been operating, in effect, a separate site that collects all of the FAR supplemental regulations for generation. Yes. Now, and it's all finally going to come together. So maybe someday we actually get that dream, which is anyone could go on to the GSA website, acquisition.gov, and say, show me what a contract would look like for the Department of the Navy or the Department of the Interior and just push a button. Um, And then let's get into fantasy land. That next step, if you could do it by agency by agency and then pick a moment in time so that we could retroactively go back and say, what did the FAR and the DFARs say on this date in time? There's no reason why we can't do that with the intelligence that we have in machine learning today. It's just a question of getting it done. That's going to be a leadership Right, and that's important well. to know at the point in time, right? It goes to the interpretation. Of, it goes to all kinds of different things. Absolutely. Policy, interpretation of contracts. Sure. Um, intent. I mean, it's uh, fun. You know, in the classroom, we always use the current FAR for the purposes right. of teaching. But as you know, from litigation, from contract interpretation, from solving problems, you need to know what the FAR looked like the day that contract was awarded. Right. And it changes. Yeah. And that's that's important. Well, Steve, we're already up on the break. Um but when we come back, I'm going to ask you what, what's keeping you up at night, you know, and, and we'll get into that negativity thing a little bit too, okay? Uh, my guest today is Steve Schooner. He's the Nash and Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Steve Schooner. He's the Nash and Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School, um, and we've been talking about all kinds of different procurement-related data, uh, procurement data, artificial intelligence, the OFPP administrator, or the lack thereof. Um, and you know, but this segment, as I mentioned at the end of the last segment, so what's keeping you up at night, Steve? What, you know, I mean, I, I think I already got a lot of them, but. <laughs> But what else is keeping yeah. you up? How about I, I that? I don't sleep so well. But the one thing that I think we're not talking enough about now is infrastructure. And it's easy to say infrastructure. And, you know, the media has been joking about infrastructure week for a couple of years now. But for many people, the Genoa Bridge collapse not that long ago yes. focused a lot of people's attention. For many Americans, it wasn't that long ago that the Minneapolis Bridge went down. I remember that, yeah. But the the reality is, is everybody wants smooth roads. Everybody wants safe bridges, and nobody wants to pay for it. And as a nation, we literally haven't invested in infrastructure for almost a generation and a half at this point. And so, you know, it was kind of interesting. I was lucky enough to go out and do a tour of the Hoover Dam recently, 
and you get reminded about what the great infrastructure projects. Yeah, that's amazing, th- amazing uh, man-made right. thing, right? I don't right. know what to call it. And but. particularly now that you can stand up on the Pat Tillman Bridge, which is yeah. literally stunning. Yeah. But the interesting thing is we're not alone in the United States having underinvested in infrastructure. And what we've often done is we've abdicated responsibility and basically pushed it down to the state and local level, which isn't bad in and of itself. But if you look around the rest of the world and you look at other than the federal government, you see that most of the growth in infrastructure around the world today is through public-private partnerships. Yes. So what's the local example, particularly for the folks in Maryland? Your purple line is a true public-private partnership. And if you're unfamiliar with them, that's a great website. Just go look at the purple line website sometimes. It's a data-rich environment. You can see the algorithms. It's it's complicated, but it's it's informative. So what we see, you know, you travel in South America, in uh, Sao Paulo and in Rio, massive infrastructure public projects done as public-private partnerships, and that's the way that governments who don't want to spend money get private sector investment, and then in effect they use something like a bot or a boot, a build-own transfer. You build me a road, you put up a toll booth. When you make back all your money, you take down the toll booth and you transfer the road to me. It makes a lot of sense. But there's so many different things. You know, we kind of, we don't even really sense it in D.C., but around the world today, free public Wi-Fi is becoming the coin of the realm. You travel to a lot of cities around the world now, and anywhere you are, whether you're in the airport or the train station or the public square, that's considered a public good. Public transportation is another one as well. Part of the infrastructure. Exactly, right. But, you know, you get on a train in Asia or in Europe. My wife and I uh, recently took the train from Rome to Geneva. Trains are faster. They're smoother. They're more comfortable. They're on time. And they go everywhere. And it's easy. And, And the bottom line is we have a lot of that. You know, in D.C., we're a little bit spoiled. You can get to New York on the train. But most of the country doesn't have the kind of train service that many other countries around the world are really used to. But our infrastructure needs are acute, and the only thing that's going to change that are disasters. And I don't like that kind of planning. I don't like it when you tell me that the only way we're going to fix the road is after 30 people end up in the river in their cars. That's not good. But these are real problems. Right. So you – you, you see the United States or our federal state turning more and more to public-private public, well, public partnerships? Public-private partnerships are really the only way out of it because right. we're, we're not, not going to spend the money. Right. Right? There's no political will whatsoever. The question, though, is who's got the wherewithal? Who's going to step up and say we need to make these long-term investments and long-term contracts? And look, your listeners understand I can say to you that the only way out of this jam is with public-private partnerships, but what that also means is long-term, high-stakes, risky contracts. Right. There's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. But, you know, if you – I don't know when the last time you drove up to New York was, but when I drive up to New York now yes. – I got my, my elders up working in Brooklyn now. I go through a minimum of six different opt-in, opt-out toll roads. So right. Yes, you I can do. get there yeah. in under four hours. Right. Yeah. But with my Easy Pass, I am going through many jurisdictions, public-private partnerships, and paying for the convenience of having a good road. I could use the back roads and make it a twelve-hour trip. 
right? Right, right. But the reality is, is this is where we're going. Now, that's nice for me and you, and I'm guessing most of your listeners don't mind paying a price premium to go relatively quickly. But in effect, what we're doing is we are pricing convenient driving transportation Easy out of pass. the reach of the public. Right. Uh, yes, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So George Washington Bridge during um, prime hours up in New York, $20, $23 to go over the bridge. Right. Okay, mm-hmm. that's good if you can afford it. Yeah. Well, right. well Route 66 inside the Beltway, right? Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. A, I'm a 66 commuter. Uh, yeah. So, you know, look, we often don't use it or we carpool in there, but it's not that uncommon to see it crack $40 yes. yep. for a straight shot down 66. Right. And I know I've been in situations where, you know what? It's D.C. The traffic is – and I have a normal route I go. But you know what? I'm not going to make this meeting unless I bite the bullet. And it's just like $25. You know, boom, I got I to gotta do it. But this is actually interesting. And, you know, this is actually a good segue to the book topic, assuming we have time okay. to get to it. Sure. Go right but, ahead. But, but let's think about this just for a second. You say 66 $40 toll. And if we had listener feedback, you would hear the fury. Right. The government should never charge that kind of money. But just remember, it's an opt in. It's an opt out. Right. It's a user fee. You don't want to pay it. Don't pay it. The people who can pay it are subsidizing other projects. Yes. So but this is improvements on that road for the non toll hours. Right. Right. So this is an important part of understanding how government works. It's like the old trope, taxes are the price we pay for a civilized society. You can yes. read those words over the entrance to the Internal Revenue Service. But, you know, as you know, I, lo- I love to talk about books when I'm on the show. Yes, and you always make a recommendation. Uh, so. so the one that I'm recommending mostly to my students but, frankly, to anybody right now, particularly the last couple of years, I really liked Michael Lewis's most recent book, The Fifth Risk. And if you're a longtime Michael Lewis reader – this is not the blind side. It's not liar's poker. It's not Moneyball. And in many ways, it's lighter and fluffier than his other books. But it's a good book. And basically what the book talks about is all those things that your federal government does that the public doesn't understand. Now, frankly, for me, one of the most compelling anecdotes in the book, and I love this, is they talk, he talks at great length about Noah and the Weather Service. Yes. And he particularly talks about it in the context of AccuWeather. And I'd actually love to do a listener poll right now. But many Americans today believe that AccuWeather has made weather prediction better because they can get AccuWeather on their phone or their laptop or whatever. And so they they think that AccuWeather is this unbelievably great service that they get for free. AccuWeather repackages federal government data that NOAA collects and then charges people to use it primarily through advertising or through premiums. So in other words, the government provides a service and AccuWeather is making money off it, but they don't want you to understand that they're basically giving you accurate – they're giving you government data. And in fact, they make, frankly, false representations that they're doing things that the government data didn't do. So it's the same data. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's remarkable because poll after poll, people think, particularly younger people, AccuWeather is the answer to weather issues. Yes, it is a convenient packaging of, of government, government data. data. And that's government infrastructure because I mean in my private per previous life, you know, the you know, 
satellites going up that know, you know, to, you know, tax the weather, the radar and tracking all that stuff and reporting all that information. That's infrastructure as well. And the complexity of weather data collection and how much more accurate it is today and how much better we are at predicting storms. And what that means is avoiding disasters. It's really a compelling antidote and it's fascinating. But I had a fascinating exchange with Elliot Branch last week. And I know oh, did many, you? Okay. many of your listeners know Elliot on this. But, you know, and again, I should never talk about Twitter, but I'm on Twitter and someone who I generally respect otherwise mentions on Twitter that he's frustrated. And he's clearly frustrated with CBP, the Customs and Border Protection Service. But he makes this broad generalization about how angry he is with DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, and everyone in leadership roles there. And I basically point out to him that, you know, DHS has over 200,000 employees. Right, right. They do a lot of really important stuff like the Coast Guard. And if you haven't seen the video of the Coast Guard folks pulling in that sub full of drugs. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, it's amazing. But, But Elliot's question is, how do you get the public to understand what our government today is? So we grew up with civics in the classroom, basic government information. And apparently that's not really taught in many of the public schools anymore. And so the public doesn't understand many of the things that the government does, and that's really important. So one of the things that I like about the Michael Lewis book is he tells this story. And he's got a number of key messages. Well, he talks about the Energy Department, which nobody understands. Yes. He talks about the Agriculture Department. Look, don't even get me started on the EPA these days. But these are, these are important <laughs> functions. Mm-hmm. But – But his messages are so important. The government is staffed by innumerable faceless civil servants who do important work every day and all of us depend on that work and our lives are better because of it. When the government doesn't understand that, it's easier for them to disrespect the government. When the civilian – when the – you know, when – Everybody else out there, the public, doesn't understand that, right? So they don't want to pay their taxes. They want to vilify the government. The government does this. The government does that. At some level, this is basically just about appreciating all of the good that your tax dollars do. And one of the most disturbing things in the current political environment is this vilification of the public sector and particularly civil servants. And I think that education really could play an important role. Well, even just – I mean, a certain sense, you're, you're describing to me a marketing campaign or just an even information campaign about here's all the services that we provide you, I, right? And through their website, through anything that right. you could. So just think of a little one. When we were kids, right, how many people died in car accidents unnecessarily? We remember when the government ran ads to get people to put on seatbelts. Right. The government ran ads to prevent forest fires. They created a bogus bear with a hat to make people more cognizant about safety in the forests. Yep. And even I think the government, GSA, was one of the leaders in buying vehicles with airbags and things like to start, you know, jumpstart. The government can be a market leader. The government can be a market mover. But I think that it is important for us, for all of us, and, you know, it's easy in D.C. to forget it, but we do have a responsibility to help the public understand all the good the government does. Right. And Steve, on that note, we got to end the show. I want to thank my guest today, Steve Schooner. He's a National Sabinic Professor of Government Procurement Law at the George Washington University Law School. And you've been listening to Off the Shelf on the Federal News Network. 
You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 